Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. Brock Bastian, Professor at the University of Melbourne in Social Psychology um, and Director of the Ethics and Wellbeing Research Hub in the school. Wrote a book called The Other Side of Happiness, being about, you know, why we need uh, difficult and adverse experiences in life and, and what, why they're important. <laughs> we, we just checked your website and we realised the amount of work that you've got is insane. No, oh, well, it takes a while. It's been a few years. <laughs> it's it's also because I think it's very hard for people to imagine doing so many years of research work. I think it's it's just easier said than done. And yes, you know mm. these people like imagine just focusing on one subject your whole life and then kind of exploring more people don't even want to live with the same woman the whole life <laughs> it's so true and this yeah this is like a marriage gone right if anything this is it's the like... example who are you uh, it's, all, it's okay it's okay we've been we've been pursuing <laughs> yeah. you for quite some time it's like if he was a yeah, tinder sorry, date sorry about that <laughs> if he, he was a tinder date he's blown us off like god knows how many times yeah so, so what is social psychology? How is it different to psychology? Well, it, it, it's just, a, I, I suppose, a, a subdiscipline or a way of defining what you do. Social psychology is, I, I guess, broadly thinking about how people engage in, in everyday behaviour, cognition, interactions, groups. Um, you know, it's not about psychological problems or, or illnesses. It's, it's about everyday human behaviour. And, and so I guess it's social because a lot of what we do is social. Um, but it's, it's just that everyday sort of understanding of human behaviour. So... When you were a child, what was your dream? Oh, I think I did eventually. I think I did originally want to be a lawyer um, back back when I was at you know high school. Yeah, I actually did want to be a lawyer too. I wanted to be a barrister. Mm. Sort of be really good at fighting cases. Yeah, I like, I like the argument. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> also, I think Brock is one of the most rare names I've come across. Like, how many Brocks do you meet? He sounds like a badass. Yeah, like I'm straight Brock. off the bat. Like, but he could like be the Terminator the last movie. Last name as well. Brock Bastion. Bastion. You really lucked right. out. You should have been in the movies. Um, or, or maybe a, a, an afternoon soap opera or something like that, apparently. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> well, he also talks like that. Like, you realise he has a very, like, sophisticated way of talking. What puts you off from doing law? Uh, I, I, I think grades, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> so, what made you do this? I was an art student at Monash University, and I really enjoyed um, philosophy and and um, was, you know I probably mostly enjoyed philosophy, and I also kind of enjoyed psychology. Um, apart from the lab reports and all of that, I had to write. But uh, but then I, I realised that probably psychology was a, an area in which there was I think more potential in terms of thinking about how to make a contribution to knowledge these days, and um, in terms of how that gets applied sometimes as well. Not to not to derogate philosophy in any kind of way, but of I did. I think that's probably Probably why I ended up in social psychology because um, I, I, uh, it's quite a philosophical, I suppose, side of psychology where you're thinking about some of those bigger theories and and how they how to understand how you know human behaviour through those those larger lenses and and certainly the work that we do tends to tap into some of those ideas um, that that I think are are quite philosophical and so I, I enjoy that that aspect. Human behaviour has changed so much dramatically over time with mm. you know paired with all the things that we have access to now. So, so are you saying it's, it's, it's changed because of the exposure that we have to like just outside stimuli now? Yeah, I would say so. Because don't you think human behavior has kind of remained the same? Well, no, I think, I think many of the, the basic motivations are still very primal. So, uh, you know, I think um, many of the things that we respond to, um, you know, 
fear, anger, you know, these things have been around for a very long time. Um, even, even ethics and morality has been around as long as humans have evolved in groups, to live in groups. So I, I think many of the things that we actually, the, the, the basis of what we do, the, the underlying basis is often um, quite stable and has been around for quite some time. But of course, it expresses itself in all sorts of different ways and, and does change over time. And, you know, there's been some, some interesting analyses, I suppose, of how humans have been changing. Uh, you know, Stephen Pinker wrote a book in terms of how we're becoming less violent, and that's documented in terms of our behaviour over the last you know, hundreds and thousands of years. So there's certainly changes, always changes, but there's also, you know, some pretty old mechanisms in there that continue to drive what we do as well. Basic uh, survival instincts are pretty, pretty strong predictors of a lot of our behaviour. When you talk about that, there was an article talking about what makes a group worth dying for, which is mm. very much linked to what you just said regarding the basic instincts of mm. survival. However, in that finding, when you wrote that you, there is a specific psychological force which overrides the person's survival instinct. Well, it's an area of research which I, I was I kind of became involved with along with uh, Bill Swan over at University of Texas and um, also um, Harvey Whitehouse at Oxford and and both of you know. Both of those guys have been interested in this for some time, and Bill really came up with this concept of fusion himself, which was to understand uh, the basis of extreme program behaviour. You know, why, why do people um, why do people sometimes engage in acts which would seem self-sacrificial uh, to to protect or to want to uh, even just out of self, you know, beyond self-interest to try and protect their own group. Um, and, and certainly there's, you know, acts of terrorism often are exactly that, you know, the sorts of things that people would do to, to promote a cause, but maybe at their own loss. One of the, the theoretical perspectives, at least from an evolutionary point of view that we brought to that, or particularly Harvey Whitehouse brought to that, was the, the way of thinking that this may be an evolved capacity to fuse or to feel fused or become fused with a, with a social group, which enables people to get through particularly difficult times. So there are times, you know, when you're just not going to survive as an individual. And so what you're better off doing is giving up a signal to everybody else in your group that you would be willing to take one for the team. And if everyone else was to do the same, that group is probably more likely to survive than a group where no one's willing to take one for the team. So it actually makes the group stronger and allows you to probably survive in, but only under very harsh and very threatening conditions. I mean, there's no reason to demonstrate that kind of commitment to a group if if you know life is good the pastures are green there's no real threat to survival but when there when, when there is a real threat to survival and you're actually your existence is under question having that more extreme response might be quite adaptive so that extreme response i'm not sure how you extrapolate it to terrorism specifically because that's kind of the pop culture topic that comes up so often yeah it's, it's that idea of a lot of documentaries of like most of us see um, a lot of them, especially with suicide bombing, it's, it's more like a positive reinforcement where they're doing it because there's there it's, it's, it's their way of adding value in this world. And it's their way of going, mm. uh, if I do mm. this, I'm doing something better for my community and I'm, I'm going to be in a better place after I die. Uh, am I, would I be right in saying that? Or it's a mixture of both? Well, I think it's a mixture. And, and, and of course, if you're told that there's an afterlife and if you do this, you know, you, you, you're going to have a wonderful time in, in, in that place. Um, maybe that belief is enough. 
but but I think what we're saying is there is some uh, psychological mechanism which exists within people that allows them to engage or feel committed to a group cause to the extent which they would do something like that. But other other factors, of course, will also add to that and, and exacerbate it as well. So yeah, I feel that there's some ultimate reward, and 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 I believe in that 100%. And, and maybe yeah, it, it makes quite good sense to drop my life here because why would I want to stay here anyway? It sounds better over there. But to the extent that maybe people even have a doubt about that, then this mechanism of fusion is something which perhaps it taps in to in some way too but definitely these things are going to be working together and i guess we're just trying to understand not you know what are the messages which might lead to extremism but rather what are the psychological and human processes which might be tapped into by some of those messages and and i guess how that might be recruited for those sorts of causes too yep I, I actually have another small question before Fine, we move on first. from this topic. So I feel like there's a constant battle between, um, I guess, adding value and doing something and fear because fear has to exist because fear has been with us since we've been on this planet. At what point do they go, you know, I, I'm not scared anymore? I don't know. I, I, would, <laughs> I, I would love, you know, I, I, I've never been in that position, obviously. And I'll get um, back to you on the research then. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I imagine there's a lot of fear. I imagine there's a lot of fear. But, but again, we override fear all the time yeah and and, and we we managed to get through or do things that would would otherwise scare us so i i think it'd be you know very unhuman not to feel very scared of doing something quite extreme like suicide you know bombing or terror yeah. acts of terrorism where you put your life on the line absolutely so moving from there i guess to to more chirpy and cheerful, <laughs> no it's still topics. not any more chirpier so sahil and i had this conversation about suicide you know when you end your life how do we override that type of fear do you know much about self-harm and suicide so well some not you know not that much but I do yeah. i do know i mean if, if you start with self-harm which is often the precursor and some well not often but can be although can they're be. actually they're actually quite unrelated too mm. um I, I mean the the reasons that people engage with self-harm are often many and varied um sometimes it's a signal or a kind of way of communicating to other people there, there, there are there are quite a number in fact I, I can't remember all of them but there is certainly research out there pointing to all the different reasons um i suppose the function why why would people do this and what's the function of it what we do know about self-harm as well is that, that it can be a way of regulating you know uh mental pain so sometimes physical pain does regulate mental pain and, and that mm. a good example of that is if you take out the self-harm and just look at the the role of pain so we often go for a, a you know maybe a long jog if we're feeling you know angry or frustrated or or down and that might actually help help to be mm-hmm. quite positive um so so the pain itself can actually be a very positive regulator physical pain can be a positive regulator of mental and emotional pain it can actually make it better uh, of course cutting ourselves goes another step and leaves shame and, and and harm and those sorts of things attached to that which is not helpful and tends to mm-hmm. you know cause other problems so I do, I do think that, you know, sometimes helping people to see that there might be other ways to engage in something which has a similar sort of effect, but actually is not harmful is, is worthwhile. And there's anecdotal evidence that, you know, that, that people sometimes may be told to put, you know, to hold ice in their hands when they're feeling like they're wanting to self-harm. Certainly the act of harming oneself, you know, it, it serves as this sort of distraction um, from what people are feeling. And, and again, it serves other things as well, but it, it tends to ultimately, you know, not work so well because of the harm attached to it. But there are other ways of, you know, accessing the sorts of things that do work in that space um, in, in far more positive pursuits. When and how that leads to suicide, and that's a whole other question and, and not something that I research, but, you know, as a, as a practitioner, I certainly, you know, see people who uh, question the value of their life. And yeah, I, I, it's a very difficult question. You know, why, why should my life or why does my life have value? Yeah. Um, you know, how, does, how do any of us believe that 
our lives are worth living? It's a very existential question and not one that you can just go, well, because of X and Y. I mean, you can point to that, but some people mm-hmm. will say, but I don't believe that or I don't get it or it's not, you know, not part of my world. So, you know, it's it's a it's a complex question and what, what to do and how to respond to it. I think I think probably the best thing to say about it is that making a sort of final decision like that, when maybe we don't have all the pieces and maybe we are looking at things through a particular lens or from a particular perspective that we might see differently later on, or maybe we haven't given, you know, a chance to see, see things differently that would be a shame because often often we are sort of myopic at that point when we are only seeing the things that perhaps aren't of value in our lives So just going off that, uh, I have two questions that branch out of here. Because you've done so much work and extrinsic work in pain itself and why it is important, like I've avoided pain all my life, mm-hmm. which I guess is like natural human tendency. Yeah. Do you think we're going about this the wrong way? Um, I, I mean, look, if, if all life was pain, it wouldn't be very good. Um, I mean, I think there is a basic desire to sort of maximize pleasure and minimize pain. But the point is that sort of you can't maximize pleasure without some pain. Um, it's it's almost impossible. In fact, it probably you know, is impossible. Um, you know, if, if if all you ever experienced was just pleasure, um, you, you'd stop experiencing pleasure at some point. You become mm, numb. Mm. So you do need these painful experiences in life. And in fact, when you think about all the things we do, which are actually pleasurable, they always involve some element of um, negativity, whether it's fear or or, or, or threat or vulnerability or um, you know anything that's exciting is because there's something dangerous attached to it. Whether it's pain or the possibility of pain, um, marathons. No, no one run marathons if they didn't hurt. Public speaking is, is rewarding because it's scary. You know, every every flip side to the best experiences we have in life um, have something that's either painful or could be painful uh, mm. attached to it. And that's what makes it exciting and, and enjoyable and, and um, rewarding in the first place. So, yeah, yeah we, the I suppose that the, the thinking is, yeah, of course, we don't want to maximise pain and minimise pleasure, but rather to maximise pleasure, you do have to lean into and accept pain because that's going to be what allows you to actually maximise pleasure in life. But trying to maximise pleasure by avoiding pain will ultimately fail. And so the second question, all right, Toda, don't look at me like that. <laughs> uh, going off that is, why do we always pair pain with pleasure and not happiness? What's the difference? Oh, look, I don't think that there is a difference. I think it's just that um, it, it's, the, it's the way the distinctions are drawn. So we tend to talk about, you know, happiness and unhappiness and we tend to talk about, you know, pleasure and pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a, good, it's a good question because there isn't actually a word, you know, states which are not, ha- you know, we, we call it unhappiness. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, even the idea that, you know, if we're not happy or unhappy suggests a lack of something, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, it does. Which is what we were talking about right before the podcast. Yeah, like- we were. We were having a massive DNM just before you came on. Um, and we're like, should we save this for Brock? We- <laughs> yeah, but, but it is true. Like, I, I think most people, are they looking for pleasure or are they looking for happiness? Yeah, I, I, and again, maybe what you talk. I, I guess it, it, it's also about thinking it, what are the different kinds of so-called happiness or well-being. Maybe is the better term there. So there, you know, we, we we can refer to hedonic well-being, which is about maximizing pleasure and happiness, happy feelings, this sort of just hedonic quality to well-being. Um, so in that sense, happiness and pleasure are really kind of the same thing in some sense. But if you think about happiness in a broader way, in terms of the more eudaimonic approach to well-being, which is about you know getting meaning out of life. So 
social connection, um, you know, purpose, uh, these sorts of broader kind of qualities. And sometimes you're going to find meaning in uh, painful and and not very pleasurable experiences, or you'll Mm -hmm. find connections to those experiences as well. And you wouldn't say I'm happy at that moment in time. You might say you're happy later, but you'll be certainly say, but I'm I'm getting a lot of meaning out of this, or Mm. I'm feeling quite connected or other sorts of things. So, you know, it depends on your scope of what you mean about what, what happiness actually encompasses. There's a lot of confusing terminology out there. Yeah, well, that's true. I think I think there is mis- a lot of misunderstanding about <laughs> what and is and does happiness. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that's because we are so different and we draw meaning from so so many different things mm-hmm. that it's too hard to actually encapsulate. In terms of entitlement, where does mm. that really come from? I, I, I mean, entitlement is about expectation, and and I suppose if we, if our expectations have been set, you know, high, um, then maybe we feel entitled to certain things in terms of what we what we expect from life. Um, and of course, if, if our lives have been very comfortable, then maybe we feel entitled to comfort. Uh, if, if we if our lives have been full of you know a lot of stuff, or or um, you know we've had access to a lot of a lot of resources, then we might feel start to feel entitled to those resources. I mean, of course we do, right? I mean. I, I don't think, you know, I think plenty of Australians feel entitled to a far better life than, you know, the other majority of the world actually ever feel entitled to. Yeah. So you, you, you start to just shift your expectations in life. Um, and, and, and so in that sense, yes, if we're, if we're protected from ever failing or ever, you know, I mean, is everyone a winner? Well, you know, does everyone get a, a ribbon? Is that really a good idea? Because do, or do people feel entitled to always get a ribbon in yeah. life? Sometimes we've tried to protect children from negative experiences, we think that keeping their self-esteem high and, and, and bolstering that and protecting them from ever feeling bad or, you know, that's um, so true. second best, um, that that will be good for them. And maybe it has just, in fact, there's plenty of people who have suggested it has just, you know, bred, a, bred more entitlement and narcissism um, rather than any kind of capacity to have any resilience in life. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think I think, I think think some of that uh, certainly certainly comes from that. I mean, it also probably just comes from living in an affluent world, uh, or yeah. I should say, you know, society, because the world itself isn't always affluent. Yeah. So you think that it's taught, not genetic? Yes, of course. I think, I think um, it doesn't take very much to put people into it. You know, if you're if you're living on a on a desert island with not much to eat, no one to talk to for a year, you know, you won't walk out of there going, "I deserve a whole lot." You'll just be very, very happy to talk to anybody <laughs> and have a good meal. Yeah. Um, and and you're very grateful for that, I think. So it doesn't take too much to probably unpick our entitlement either. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk to pricks either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sahil will still be entitled. Yeah, I want to enjoy my He's like, I want to talk to only good people. Only smart people. <laughs> so quickly going back, you did say something about cultural differences when it comes to entitlement. Mm-hmm. So that would then also be different in regards to pain and how we experience pain. I'm not sure I, I, I could say that that's the case. I think I think pain's a pretty basic experience. There are cultural differences in, in all things. Um, I'm not sure if I've been able to identify any specific cultural differences in how we would experience pain per se. There certainly are cultural differences in how we experience um, negative emotion though. Um, mm. So not not you know so pain in the broader sense if you like but mm-hmm. we certainly know that people respond to negative emotion differently across cultures and we've we've done some yeah. research on that where where for example it seems that in in uh, Western societies people are just generally a little bit more un- 
were less less comfortable with some of their negative emotions. They 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 and some of the reasons we identified with that is because they tend to uh, well let's let's put it the other way around. People in Eastern cultures, and I use this term very very loosely. It's a bad it's a bad sort of division, but it's a division that exists in literature. The people in Eastern uh, cultures tend to expect change more and 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 see that things will change. Like yeah. the Yang, if you like, is always you know what goes up must come down. This sort of idea. Uh, people in Western societies and if, if our sort of way of thinking tends to predict or, or or expect more linear direction in things. And so with that belief around change being more prominent in some cultures, that makes it easier to deal with negative emotion and uncomfortable experiences because we actually straight away have this belief that they, that will change. It's, it's a time-limited sort of experience. It's not going to continue forever. Um, we also, I think in some cultures, people understand things in context a lot more. Uh, you know, there's collectivist cultures and individualist cultures. People sort of focus on individuals and their experiences. And I think if, if, if you're an individual feeling depressed and understanding why am I sad that makes it more difficult to deal with that if you're an individual thinking I'm depressed uh, what's going on around me and in my environment that might be leading me to feel this way it's a much better way of responding to it so that Mm That way of understanding the self in context is a, is a very important way of regulating and responding well to, to negative emotion. And, and also the acceptance of contradiction. In, in Western cultures, we tend to have a logic which is about avoiding and overcoming contradiction and coming up with either or sort of answers. And, and we know in, in, you know, traditionally, at least in Eastern cultures, is more of a, it could be both. And, and so one of the things we know there is that people tend to, in Eastern cultures, experience positive and negative emotions together more, or at least mm. they're less likely to be negatively related. Whereas in Western cultures, my happiness tends to, well, my, my, my sadness tends to disrupt my happiness. Um, mm. So if I'm feeling sad, I can't feel happy, whereas I might have more of a mixed emotional experience or be more likely to experience in that way. In the next well, uh, so with Eastern cultures, would you say that is it the existence of positive and negative emotions or is it sort of more of being comfortable with the negative emotions and finding a positive edge to it? I think it's being comfortable with the negative emotion and being able to accommodate it. You know, so, and so why it's the is idea that? Of, would you know why? You know, I, I, it's much much easier to be comfortable with the negative emotion if I think it's going to change, if I understand the kind of broader context in why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I don't see it as including my ability to experience some pleasure and happiness in life at the same time. That's much easier to deal with there than if I see it as something that's not going to change, um, yeah. that, that is, is says something about who I am and which precludes my ability to experience other kinds of good, positive, happy experiences while I'm in that state. Oh, because I do find um, a lot of the time I speak to people about this sort of stuff and they're often quite comfortable in their sadness and they continue that way. And then on top of that, they end up with gambling problems or drinking problems. And then it keeps exacerbating the situation as they keep going. My question is, do you think that it takes a type of person, regardless of, you know, where they're from or whatever their background is, do you think that personality wise, it takes a specific type of person and to be able to persevere. So, Brock, how do you define personality? Well, it's those stable, those more stable aspects that that I, I suppose continue or follow us around, you know, for a good part of our lives that, that you know, that we would look back and go, yeah, I guess that's the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so, and of course that, that's what makes us different to each other um, rather than the situational things, which probably lead us all to behave in, in some sort of way in a given context, personality would predict different responses in that same context. I think that, um, you know, it, 
in terms of resilience, I think that it's probably there are definitely big individual factors there. We know that there are certainly what 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 leads to those individual factors. I don't think we know a lot about, and and I think we could probably also say that there are there's a lot of learnt learnt behaviour in terms of how people can. I mean, again, if if if, if psychology's got anything to offer in terms of intervention, you know, hopefully it's helping people to become more resilient. So I do think you can teach it definitely. Okay. Um, do you so think not, the world is becoming more resilient? The world. Yeah. Oh, and be honest. Because I can see something in your face. (laughs) I can see something in his face. So I I just really want to ask. And I I think. I don't know if I could answer that. That, that. That's a pretty hard question to answer. But I mean, I, I think that um, I think that we're getting much better at dealing with our psychology and, and understanding it. And, and so that I think is making us more resilient because people are able to, they've got the language, we've got the insights that we didn't used to have in terms of how do our minds actually work? How do our brains work? And how can we, how can we use that knowledge to, to help regulate the way that, it, that they drive us and motivate us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the brain is an incredibly powerful piece of machinery. And if you don't know how to drive it, it, it can take you, you know, take, take you places you didn't want to go. Mm. So you really, you really do need some of those, those insights and tools. And we're, we're developing those much more today than we were, you know, years ago. Although there's always been common and good cultural knowledge and, and historical knowledge around human behaviour, of course, as well. Are people becoming more resilient? I mean, I think that our capacity to deal with discomfort, uh, physical discomfort in particular, probably has gone down. I mean, we live comfortable yeah. lives. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what some of the, you know, some of the things that people outside of our, you know, and I'm probably talking about the 10 percent here at least at the most you know or mm. mostly i should say mm. um you know the 10 percent of us who have very very comfortable lives where yeah we probably have lost a bit of the capacity to deal with you know mm. extreme discomfort or or to live a, a rough lifestyle and we'd have to learn to do that we could learn to do that if we were forced to but what it would take COVID? some oh. well you know i mean <laughs> yeah what was that it like was hard you, it was hard and i and i wouldn't you know i mean i struggled and everyone struggled and we, we you know and i think i think that was seriously a hard year mm. um are there human experiences which go beyond that absolutely uh, are there people who are living life in, in ways which go which are even more difficult than that year on year absolutely mm-hmm. um, but sometimes it's about what you know and we didn't really know that um, of course we adapted to it which is interesting right I mean mm-hmm. in Victoria the second lockdown was somehow easier although you know started to wear us down definitely but at least we knew what to do yeah um, started to get a little bit you know a little bit frustrating um, it was shit but i did i did have a question brock um yeah which which has always puzzled me and i guess like you could probably give me some insight on this when you uh, when you said when huda talked about going back to say taking your own life or my life doesn't have value why is it so hard to ask the opposite question why does my life have value really i don't know if i, I don't know if it, we, it, it's hard to you know to come up with reasons it just depends on your perspective so i mean i think you know mm. to, to 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 recognize that we have a positive impact on on people around us or or mean something to others is not i think that hard i think people forget get it but then you can remind them and I think that they do remember that but I think it's because you also the smarter you are the, the, the quicker you can zoom out <laughs> Huda said literally the same thing she's like the smarter, we are. <laughs> the, the smarter we are sometimes the more well it's 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 the you know it, it's sometimes you're able to discount all of those things because you can think about the alternative so you can you know and you can think about the fact we are a speck you know we're a speck of dusk on a rock going going who knows where right and so if you start to think about it that way it's very hard to say that your life's valuable and so well why it's such a small thing so that's that's an existential problem i think all humans have and we've 
been trying to solve for a long time. And yep. So it depends how you think about it and what level. But then when you zoom back in again, um, you can see that you are having a positive impact on people around you and that matters and that's worthwhile, worth, worth something. Yeah, um, that's actually a, really cool. That's a good I message. Like that. I, I think that is an important message to yeah. you know, have out there that we are make. I, I agree with Mark, like mm. we forget. Mm. Again, like it's very interesting to me that it's like the body tends to remember or I don't know if it's the body or it's the mind, it tends to remember the negative experiences quite clearly. And we have to remind ourselves about the positive things in life, but the negative shit just sticks there. <laughs> so just, I'm just going to take a moment to talk about myself a little bit. But the last time we did actually have this conversation, I, I did say that I've never once ever considered suicide as an option or that, you know, I don't want to leave or maybe I shouldn't exist. And I've been super, super, super depressed. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that because yeah, he he thought Sahil thought that was really unusual or weird or interesting. Mm -hmm. It was just mm -hmm. like, well I'm surviving, I'm living, I'm on this yep. planet. Mm -hmm. yep. It's really shit right now, but yep. it's okay. Yep. And and look I think I think that is um Hopefully that, that that's a perspective that people can keep because I think it's a good one. Um, but look, some people don't. Some people struggle yeah. to keep that perspective. And and that's what the discussion was that, you know, for someone who's grown up with that perspective, like mm. they find it easier to deal with things. But for someone mm. else, and this especially happens with people who kind of think in um, the extremes, either it's this or that. Mm. Like yeah. life is either totally positive, totally negative. Like Makes it hard. Yeah, it yeah. makes it a lot harder. They can't live in that mm. gray area. Um, I want to talk about empathy as we were talking about has resilience kind of, you know, changed over the years. I think empathy is a big one because it's one of those popular words that are just thrown around yep. a lot. How do you define and empathy? Yeah, so there's an emotional component, which is, I suppose, being able to, to some extent, you know, feel a little bit what other people feel. But there's also a cognitive component, which is about perspective taking and, and being able to put yourself in other people's shoes. Those two things tend to go together because, you know, by putting yourself in other people's shoes, you can actually get a sense mm -hmm. of actually feeling what they feel. And, and, and certainly the, the empathic or, or emotional component tends to be quite automatic. So our empathy for other people's pain is very automatic. Um, we don't we don't sort of it, it sort of happens pretty instantaneously. Um, other things maybe we need to sort of think through and be able to you know start to understand where a person might be coming from before we get that that sort of empathic response, uh, emotional response. But yeah, there's sort of two two dimensions to it. Do you think that our levels of empathy are they due to our own experience or are they in us? I think it's a bit of both. So again, as always, we'll always probably say that, but there are there probably are some individual differences again in in empathy, the capacity or tendency to experience it. I mean, certainly, you know, anybody who who varies, and we all do vary on um, on the so-called spectrum, you know, the autism spectrum. So some people are very high on it, some people are very low on it. Mm -hmm. As you go up in that spectrum, you probably find it more difficult to experience empathy for other people. There are other factors as well, the individual difference factors, but also there are situational, you know, and, and I suppose experience factors. So if you've been through an experience, you'll find it easy to mm -hmm. emphasize with another person who's been through that experience, of course, too. So, mm -hmm. and perhaps some experiences might impact overall on your empathy too. You know, you, if you've gone through perhaps something which is very difficult in your life, maybe that's 
generated a whole bunch of empathy for other mm. people in general. It just mm-hmm. there, there, I guess, there's a range of variants there. How important do you think empathy is um, in the current society that we live in? Especially, I think, because of social media, everyone's behind a computer. Um, well, two things there. I mean, you might want to ask Paul Bloom if he wrote a book called Against Empathy, where he argues oh. that actually empathy is a real problem, and one of the reasons oh. for that is that he wrote it, you know, because empathy drives prejudice. Um, I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's, only, it's only because of our, you know, our favoritism for, for our own group that we oh. tend to be prejudiced against other groups and, and want to, you know, keep things for our, our, ourselves and, and mm-hmm. our own. Um, and empathy can, can often drive that. And he, he argues for, you know, for compassion or reasoned compassion, which is a, a, a more, I suppose, um, it's a response which is a little more abstract, probably a little more cognitive, mm-hmm. but allows you to actually respond perhaps with less of that emotion and less of that um, that. that human drive to connect and of course you know you see that in in say for example campaigns where you know people will give a lot of money to something which just triggers that empath- empathic response but not because it's the best thing to give money to it's just yeah. the thing that they saw a picture of a child you know on a beach and that triggered that empathy and so that suddenly there's a lot of money coming in but maybe maybe there are other causes which are actually more important if we were to yeah. think about it that's um, really interesting so he, he i mean he takes a you know it's not he's actually against empathy altogether but he takes that kind yeah. of argumentative stance yeah in terms of your traits and values, do you think that they dictate our own well-being? Traits and values, um, certainly they play a very strong, yeah, they play a role in it. As, again, as, as with anything, I'll, I'll probably give you the same answer again. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> certain, there's certain component that, that, that traits do do matter. Um, yeah. You know, we know that extroverts tend to experience high levels of well-being just because it, I guess it gives you access to social resources more easily, um, not because extroverts are more valuable, but also, um, you know, and, and of course, there are certain values that you might hold on to which are likely to contribute to your well-being more than others but um yes there are you know we, we do know that there are sort of contributors individual difference contributors to well-being but again well-being you know no matter what those traits or values that you've got if you put yourself in a particular situation which is very difficult you'll you'll experience reduced well-being as well so and and i actually wanted to know like while while studying social psychology did did that open you up to kind of being really open to, you know, other belief systems or other ways of thinking? Because I feel like you as Brock as a person are so open-minded with all thoughts and opinions. Like, is this is this something out there that really ticks you off? That you go, this is absolutely horrendous. Because I want to see that side of you as well. <laughs> he wants to get you angry. <laughs> yeah, like, like what ticks you off? Oh, I don't know. Traffic. Um... <laughs> it's so basic. There things there that annoy me, but I, I guess my Maybe part of look. I think it's good to get annoyed. It's good to get angry about certain things too. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have a particular particular thing that, that that you know is the bee in my bonnet from time. You know, I think I'd be different. really pissed off fighting with you. Yeah, he'd be so open minded. <laughs> he'd be so open. annoying. Yeah, it'd be like, just, <laughs> come on, Brock, just getting. Fucking I'd just be like trying to rile you up and be like, nothing pisses you off. Yeah, like yeah, this is <laughs> anger. Anger is good for you. Uh, uh, have you? Oh, you'd have be you surprised. Ever... You'd be surprised. <laughs> so you had a question on morals and humanity, right? Yeah. Yes. So I find that a lot of the time, most people that I do talk to that are, that tend to be a little more down the humanitarian side, they're always fairly happy. Is there a correlation? Hmm, it's a good question. Uh, and, and probably something that we're going to do a little more research on because I think, um, yeah, look, it could be that, um, that I suppose connecting with ethical actions in the world leads to more well-being. It could also be the opposite, that, you know, if you are constantly 
weighing up the ethical implications of your actions that actually it's quite a heavy place to be and and, yeah. and can be quite draining so um yeah i think it's it's actually a project we're going to be working on a bit more this year are you gonna put my like, name um, on it as one of the authors well i can't just we'll put see you how you contribute yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah thank you thank you maybe one of the you subjects you want to collect some data for us and yeah. some data absolutely I've been no, happy to. no you you'd be terrible at collecting data numbers just get jumbled in your head i know it's true you just cannot make out data doesn't always have to come from numbers yeah true that is true yeah. all right brock so what's your goal for the future like if there was one thing that you wanted people to get out of this whole conversation today what would you you know make them take away I guess? make them take away oh look i think i think that um you know the more the, the more that we, you know, I suppose understand the basics of some of the, you know, some of the research in, in, in social psychology and psychology more generally, the more that we, you know, get a better understanding of human nature, you know, the, the more we're able to, I suppose, drive that car rather than be a passenger and without, you know, always knowing where it's going. So that, that allows us to probably build better societies, respond to, you know, our needs in better ways think through problems more effectively um, and there's certainly a few of those down the road so you know I think that would be that would be good if, if we are able to use some of that knowledge to to enable us to yeah, work together in better ways to build build hopefully a better future or even just a future would be quite good <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you're basically saying we should be able to drive the car and not have a Tesla which <laughs> just drives itself yeah, well, well you know I'm happy with that as well we, yeah because sorry. traffic oh <laughs> comes back to traffic Brock thank you so much for for your time today. Of course. Nice to meet you, Brian.